Wow, how do you follow that? I'm like, I feel like a student when it comes to communicating to groups of adults. I communicate to kids on a regular basis, so give me a little grace. I brought my pen and my, my, my highlighter here to make notes as I res like read your responses as I'm talking here. I don't have an opening because Josh just took it. Um, <laughs> did you guys enjoy, some of you guys maybe hopefully saw Pastor Luke, our next-gen pastor, speak last service at the 1025 service. What I realized when I walked in this morning is that he is so cool. I can't even, just saying cool actually makes me feel old because cool isn't used anymore. But he had his next-gen jeans on and his next-gen necklace on and his next-gen like glasses on and I've just got this tired old sweater on, so I'm so sorry. Today, uh, during this service, we're going to be talking about politics, power, and Paul. Now, we try not to talk about politics here, uh, and I'm not going to tell you how to vote, to vote. Uh, I'm not going to, to go down that road, but I do want to say this, that um, as a pastor, I love using words like that always start with the same letter, therefore it must be true, right? P politics, power, and Paul. But also, during this period of time, in, in this like season of our country, isn't politics everywhere? It's everywhere. The comedians are talking about it. The politicians obviously are talking about it. It is everywhere you turn. And I just think that it would be a disservice to Jesus Christ if we don't mention that when Jesus came to this planet incarnate, that he politically, there was a political response to his coming in the flesh. Matthew 2, you can check it out later. Uh, Matthew 2, King Herod actually found out that, that Jesus was coming, the Messiah, the, the one who was promised to be king, and he was so terrified of it that he actually killed, Matthew says, all the two-year-old boys and under in that area and the surrounding area. And so don't tell me that Jesus isn't politically charged, right? I wrote down here, political leaders often respond to Jesus poorly. So I do want to say that. But today, we are going to be emphasizing and focusing on the word power, often associated with politics, but we're going to be talking about power today. And my big statement for our time together this morning is this, that if you follow Jesus, he will reshape how you view power and use power. Let me read that again. If you follow Jesus, he will reshape how you view and use power. So to jump in here, I'm going to read some scriptures um, uh, on and off today, but 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bible like me, I've got this old school Bible with the picture of Jesus on it, because I work with kids, I get to do this. Um, I've got my Bible here, or you can power it on, or you can watch, look on the screen, but we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. And I don't do this, we don't do this very often, but if you would, just please stand with me as we read our scripture this morning. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where, the, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jesus demanded, or the Jews demanded miraculous signs, and Greeks looked for wisdom, but he preached, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who, whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we uh, pray to you as one God. I invite you to use me to speak uh, what needs to be spoken today. I submit my will, my desires, my hopes, and my expectations to what's going to happen in the next 30 minutes, and I surrender that all to you. I pray, Lord, that we would all do the same, that you, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one that empowers us to be Christ followers and enables us to do things that we read about in Scripture. I pray that we would just allow you to do just that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, over the next 20 minutes, we're going to take a look at power. We're going to look at power from Genesis to Revelation. If you don't know, that is the entire Bible. Okay, we're going to look at power and its theme, the power of the theme of power throughout Genesis all the way through Revelation. As you might have guessed, I'm going to try to do this in 20 minutes, so I'm not going to go do like real deep dives uh, as we're going through this. I would like to just take a moment um, to talk about power quickly. There's a few uh, kind of long quotes that uh, that might help us think about power. We could have I could have talked about power and political power and financial power and personal power, physical power. I could talk about mental power, emotional power. I could talk about all these different types of power. But today I thought I would try to stay at a higher level and uh, use a few quotes from my uh, now new, uh, one of my new favorite authors, uh, Robert Capon. Robert Capon was, he passed away, an Episcopal priest. He also was a gourmet chef. Uh, He also wasn't like author and he wrote for New York Times, he wrote all over the place. There's a lot of books that he's written. So basically, this guy that I'm quoting today is a combination of Josh, Tenoria, and somebody else. Okay, this guy was the real deal. And so today, um, we're just going to stop and take a moment to look at power before we jump into scripture here again. Capon goes on and he says that power, there are two types of power, he says, when he looks at scripture. He sees right-handed power and he sees left-handed power. And just quickly, right-hand power is straight-line power. It's direct intervention with no no mediator. It's like direct. He goes on to say that right-handed power uses the force you need to get the results you want. Some examples of right-handed power. Uh, This morning when you got out of bed and you went down to the pantry, you were hungry. So you used right-handed power to reach into the pantry to get your fruity pebbles out to fill your bowl, to put milk in it, to grab a spoon, to fill the spoon full of fruity pebbles and milk, and to put it to your mouth over and over, I know you this, over and over again, right? Fruity pebbles, it takes a while to get full on that stuff. That is right-handed power. You were hungry, and so you took direct action, and you made yourself full. You used force, the force that you needed to get the results that you wanted. Another example of right-handed power is the kind that, for those of you who have cats, You walk out of the house dressed in your finest, right? And you look down and you see that that, uh, your cat was was resting on you somewhere at some point during the the, the morning, and you use right-handed power to brush yourself off. That is right-handed power. I don't have that problem. I don't have cats. One more time, the right-handed power is the power that we could use to remove our enemy with a right-handed fist or the squeezing of a trigger. That is right-handed power. It is power that is, we can use the force we need to get the results you want. That is what Capon says. He can see that in Scripture. 
The other type of power is left-handed power. And I'm just going to read this quote. It's a little long. Stick with me. But Capon writes this. He says that left-handed power, in other words, is precisely paradoxical power. Power that looks for all the world like weakness. Intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. More than that, it is guaranteed not to stop determined, to stop no determined evildoers whatsoever. It might, of course, touch and soften their heart, but then again, it might not. It certainly did not for Jesus. And if you decide to use it, that is left-handed power, you should, sorry, left-handed power, you should be quite clear that it is po- probable, that it's poss- it probably won't work for you either. The only thing that it does is that you will not, even after your chin is bashed in, that's fun, even after your chin is bashed in, you have made the mistake, you will not have made the mistake of closing your interpersonal doors from your side, which may not at first glance seem like much of, of a thing to ensure, let alone like an, ex, an exercise worthy of the name power. But catch this, he says this. But when you come to think of it, left-handed power is power. So much power, in fact, that it is the only thing in the world that evil cannot touch. God in Christ died forgiving. With the, with the dead body of Jesus, he wedged open a door between himself and the world and said, there, just try to get me to take that back. That is an example of left-handed power. When the people of the day waiting for this coming Messiah, this coming king, were expecting him to come with right-handed power to overthrow Caesar, to take over Rome, and to become the king, the conquering king, Jesus Christ, God himself said, no, I'm going to put all those things down, and I'm going to use left-handed power. And to the world, it will look like foolishness. It'll look like it actually never did what we thought in we believe still that it did. If you open up your Bibles to Genesis 1, this won't take long, I promise. I'll take a drink real quick here. Genesis 1, the first line. Can someone read that real loud for me? I know we're not that kind of church, but I'm not that kind of guy. Right? I got to have some feedback. I don't have long, continuous thoughts without, like, come someone, someone, someone read the first line for me, Genesis 1. Yes, thank you, Adam. Yes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ah, that feels good. Half of me is like, that's, the, that's what church is, all right? That's what church is. All right, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the origin of all power. I'm just going to take a moment here and just say this, that all things have been created by the power that comes from the word from the mouth of God. To say hand or finger, I may say that throughout today's sermon, but we've just got to admit that he spoke things into existence and all the things that ever were and ever will be came from him, originated with him. Let's stop for a moment and think what that, exa- that actually means. It means that the millions of burning balls of gas called stars that are in the sky, most of which that are bigger than our sun, all of the power of all those stars combined came from the mouth of God. That means that every mountain and every tree, every animal that is under the ground, that's on the ground, that's above the ground, all of those creatures and all of those things, you go to the Grand Canyon or you go to the Mount Everest, you go to mountains, you say, how on earth did these show up? These are so big. All of that 
was created by the power that came from the mouth of God. The ocean and its depths, the currents that change temperature, um, the, the animals that are larger than buses that we will never see in our lifetime. All of those creatures, the entire ocean got its power. It originated from God. Every man, every woman, every child that has lived, is living, and ever will live got its power from God. Every angel, every archangel, every fallen angel, every devil got its power originally from God. Now we could talk about what people and things have chosen to do with that power, but that's another sermon. But if you see, if we take all of this power that from all of creation, from heaven to earth and outside of the earth, and you put it all in one big ball, that doesn't even come close to the amount of power, the original source of power that is God. Can I get an amen? Can you imagine the person that we're talking about today that is represented perfect exactly in Jesus Christ, the amount of power that is present there? So when scripture says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that doesn't sound so crazy anymore, does it? But inside of God, all power originated. We have to, if we're going to talk about power, we have to talk about where it came from. Genesis 5 is where we're going to pick up next as we're going through from Genesis to Revelations quickly. The first five chapters, I promise, take the longest, all right? Genesis 5. Um, Capon says that this is, an, this is the last example of right-handed power by God. Now, don't, don't stone me yet. Um, this is, what, this is, this is kind of what he says. He says, so remember, right-handed power is using the force that you need to get the results that you want. Genesis 5, this is the story of Noah and the ark. Raise your hand if you've, seen, you've heard that story. Awesome. If you haven't, I'm not even joking. Come hang out in the kids' ministry. I would love for you to be one of my volunteers. Um, and then, two, you can hear that story. We talk about it all the time. It's such a fun story to tell. I'm just going to give a quick highlight. Right? So God looks down at the earth. This is after the fall. Man has already messed things up in the Garden of Eden. And the man, man has been doing one thing right. He's, he's reproduced and populated the earth. And so God looks down, but he sees that man has turned its back on him and on each other. And he's just sad to all get out. He is sorry he ever made man. And so God says, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm wiping it all out. I'm blotting it all out. It was a mistake. My bad. But then he looks down and he sees one man, Noah. And Noah has not turned his back to God or to his neighbor. And so God said to Noah, he said, Noah, I need you to build an ark. I want your family to be in that ark. And I will bring two of every animal to save creation, this thing that we already just talked about. We're going to save creation in this family, in this boat, by your obedience to me. So Noah takes years to build this ark while his neighbors are continuing like going to parties, getting married, building new additions to their houses, probably buying the top of the line next gen camel that's faster than last gen's camel. They're doing all this stuff, carrying on like life's fine. And they're ripping Noah, just making fun of him. You're crazy, man. What are you doing? This is so far from the, there's not even any water, right? And so Noah just does it. 
And so God uses right-handed power when he looks down at the earth. He shuts the door of the ark after Noah and his family and all the animals are in there. And it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. The water goes up. Everybody on the planet except for Noah is wiped out. Capon says that is right-handed power. After this event, if you remember, this is the, the fun part of the story. God puts a rainbow in the sky and he makes a covenant with man. And he says, I will never do that Again, this is what Capon says about that rainbow. He says, it turns out to reveal a different notion of power entirely. God says he is never going to do anything like that again. He says that his answer to evil that keeps the world from becoming the city of God will not paradoxically involve direct intervention on behalf of that city. Instead, he makes a covenant of non-intervention with the world. He sets his bow in the cloud I like that. He sets his bow in the cloud, the symbolic development of which could be either that he hangs all of his effective weapons against evil or wickedness up on the wall, or more bizarrely still, that he points them skyward at himself instead of us. And so Capon suggests, and I don't know if you agree with that, I'm still kind of wrestling with it a little bit, but he says that God stopped using right-handed power after the flood. He put the rainbow in the sky and said, listen, I'm not going to do it this way anymore. We're, I'm going to do this differently. And I'll do a quick fast forward. It appears that God starts using left-handed power, the kind that kind of doesn't make any sense. We can see it in Abraham. God wants to start a nation. He actually wants to build a city for himself. And so he goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, go to the place that I will show you and I will make a nation of you. Abraham's an old man. His wife is an old lady. Not disrespectful. They didn't have any kids, but God was like, hey, I'm going to use you to start a nation. Can imagine Abraham's family looking at him and going, what are you talking about? And he's like, I don't know. Abraham responds appropriately and obeys and trusts God and goes. We can see that only after a few hundred years, it took a long time, not even during Abraham's lifetime, but we can see that God actually what, what he said was going to happen through Abraham happens. And so God spoke, man responded, and what God said was going to happen happens. We can see that in Abraham. We can see the same thing in Moses. Now, when I bring up Moses, I, I have to do a little caveat. I often hear this. People say, if God wants to do something in my life, usually they don't say it like, like they're from New York, but that's what came out right there. If God wants to do something in my life, he better just give me a burning bush experience. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you ever heard that. To me, at first glance, that looks like right-handed power. A bush is burning, dude. Bush is burning and it's talking to you. But here's what I want to say. God is speaking to Moses, still requiring a man to respond appropriately for God's will to be done on this earth. And so God speaks to Moses in this killer burning bush. Moses is like, what? And God's like, go set my people free. Go back to Egypt, set my people free. They've been in slavery. They've been in bondage for a long time. And I want you to get them out of slavery. And so man and God partner together and they do this amazing, amazing thing. That's left-handed power. We see David. David, a little shepherd boy, through the prophet, I believe, Nathan. God says, this little boy is going to be king. And so then he finds David in the field, right? And he's like, hey, you're going to be king. And David's like, what? I'm going to be king. And all of his bigger brothers are like, what? He's going to be king. Everyone was like, this guy is not a king. He's not the biggest. He's not the oldest. He's not the strongest. He's not the smartest. He's just a little boy out there doing that thing. 
And so David responds appropriately. In this case, David waits. David is a shepherd, then he's a soldier, then he's a refugee from the kingdom that he's supposedly the king of. And eventually, in David's lifetime, what God said happens. He becomes king. And see, all of these are stories of left-handed power where God comes and he says, God could have made David king today. He could have made him, like, come to him and said, you're going to be king. Boof, got rid of Saul, got rid of all the enemies, all the Philistines. I'm going to do all this with my right hand. I'm going to wipe this out, and then you're going to be king. Got it? God doesn't do that. He's working his story out through history with man. See, left-handed power, paradoxically, is a power that is ultimately expressed in Jesus' ministry here on earth. Jesus, God-man, 100% God, 100% man, comes down to this earth. Everyone expects him to be the king that takes over, that rules and that reigns with his right hand, and he's got his army, and he does his magic tricks, and people are like, man, you can do anything. And Jesus says, I am king, I am king. But the way for me to my kingdom is the cross. And the way for you to get to the kingdom, to my kingdom, that I will rule in, is the cross. And then not only that, but I'm going to Jesus, trust in God the Father and the Holy Spirit that they're going to raise me from the dead. But when they do, three days after I'm gone, it is a guarantee that you who believe in me, who receive the Holy Spirit, will also be resurrected too. This blew my mind this week. I was reading through scripture. And Paul's hope in Jesus was not just about the forgiveness of sins. The cross does that, yes. But when you look at Paul, when he's writing specifically in Philippians, he says, I hope, and he says even, I don't even know how, in the resurrection. And he wasn't talking about Christ's resurrection. Paul was talking about his resurrection. My hope is in this. I cannot wait. I'm trusting in Jesus for that because when I'm gone, I don't have any power, but I'm trusting that just like Jesus came from, back from the dead, like was resurrected. I'm hoping in that. He even said that for the people in Philippi. He was like, guys, my hope for you is that I'm not sure, I'm not sure how this works, but I hope for you for the resurrection of Christ. It's not this ethereal thought. This is actually an embodied resurrection that Jesus modeled for us. It's amazing. It's powerful. Now, like we read in 1 Corinthians at the very beginning of our time together this afternoon, that the, that the cross and the resurrection and all that stuff sounds total, it sounds like foolishness, doesn't it? Capon wrote this, and I think this is my last Capon quote, I promise. But he wrote this, he wrote this, he said, The New Testament proclaims an unlikely Savior. The work of Jesus in, the, in his incarnation, life past, uh, his life, his passion, his death, his resurrection and ascension makes no worldly sense at all. And then you just have to like kind of put down your, your like this is going to sound a little unholy, but this is what he says. Jesus is like this. The portrait of the gospel paints is this, that a lifeguard who leaps into the surf swims to the drowning girl and instead of doing the, cr- the cross chest carry, drowns with her, revives three days later, and walks off the beach with the assurance that everything, including the apparently still dead girl, is going to be okay. That is what the gospel sounds like to people who do not believe in the cross and the resurrection. Do you understand that? Do you get that? Do you hear that for the first time maybe in a long time? Like the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness. It makes no sense. But yet, we can see it's true. I'm going to make this switch in the last eight minutes, and I want to talk a little bit about Jesus. One second. 
Jesus is the son of God and he is the son of man. Jesus self-identifies throughout the gospel of Luke as the son of man. I think it's like seven times or nine times or something. He's like the son of man, the son of man. Now everyone knows that Jesus is the son of God. At least that's what his disciples got that. And I think the temptation here is to take Jesus and to lean one way or the other too far, right? If you lean too far towards the son of God, you often make the jump that he was some sort of like Superman, right? When he's in trouble, peace, I'm out. He flies. He takes off his Clark Kent suit, throws his glasses down, and he just takes off, right? Turns back time, flies around. Remember that? Anyone? Okay, that was my favorite. Okay, see, I'm old. I'm old. Like, a lot of people are looking at me like, that Superman hasn't done that yet. No, he did it in the past. Okay, so anyway, we think that God, Superman is God, and so we just think he's like, like Jesus, like he was Superman. He just did stuff. He pulled the God card all the time. There are other people that say, and I don't know that anybody in this room is in this place, but maybe you are, where Jesus is just man. Like, he was a prophet, like Moses, and, and like all the prophets before him. He was just a, a special guy, Right? But Jesus walks this line where he's like, actually, I'm both. And this is what gets me really, really excited. Is that when we look at Jesus, Scripture says that he is the exact representation of God the Father. The exact. Raise your hand if you grew up with a picture of an angry God sitting on a throne waiting to smite you. Okay, I did. Okay, look, my hand's up. All right. Okay, Jesus, does that look like Jesus to you? Doesn't look like Jesus to me. What if you got a picture of God who is this God that sits off at a distance and, and is just kind of waiting for you to figure things out until like, you kind of get your life figured out and cleaned up, and then God, once you get things like figured out, he'll come in and he'll accept you. That does not look like Jesus to me. But I also believe that Jesus was the first, like the second Adam. And what I mean by that, he is like the perfect example of what it means to be a man or to be a woman in the kingdom of God. Like he did both. And so Jesus, who being the very nature of God, I'm actually going to just skip down to this. I've got to, I don't even know if I'm supposed to do this now, but I got to read this. This is what Paul's words, these are not mine. So let me just write, let me read this. It says, this is Philippians 2, 6. Paul says this, that Jesus who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him after the resurrection, through the ascension. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Oh, sorry, I just totally started going by memory. In the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul got it. Paul was like, no, listen, he is God, yes. He never used his godliness for something to like to get himself out of trouble, okay? He just set that aside and he trusted on the Holy Spirit and the Father to lead him. If that sounds like blasphemy, read the book of Luke and Acts, which actually is one book, but they kind of split it up into two parts. Read the book of Luke, start there. Jesus came, um, he was baptized when his ministry started. It says that the Holy Spirit forced him out into the wilderness. So Jesus wasn't like, well, God, me, what should I do next, me? He was like, no, Holy Spirit, what am I doing? The Holy Spirit forces him out into the wilderness. 
And time and time and time again through the Gospels, Jesus is doing amazing things. And God is, and it says like, right, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully in Jesus. And Jesus did this thing. And then Jesus did that. And then Jesus did this. And then Jesus did that. And it's always Holy Spirit's coming. And near the end of the book of Luke, it stops saying the Holy Spirit. Because I think at that point, Luke's like, you got it, right? Like Jesus is moving by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now we start and we're like, wow, that's amazing. Like he did that. No, he actually did that. And here's a quick metaphor for you if you're still trying to grasp this, right? Because it kind of runs into the face of maybe the way that you thought of Jesus before, like Superman, God, card, he, he, he kind of knows everything, and so he's asking questions he knows the answers to. Let me just, let me, here's, an, here's an analogy. Apollo 13, it was a movie that came out in 1995. Yes, I'm showing my age again. That might have been the last movie I saw in theaters. Like, it was a good one. It was Tom Hanks. You remember this one, Tom Hanks? And uh, Apollo 13 was a mission that actually happened. It didn't just happen in Hollywood. It actually happened. It was the, a return trip to the moon after Neil Armstrong touched down on the moon. And so uh, uh, Apollo 13, the story goes that the astronauts go out. They're about ready to uh, land on the moon. They're so excited. Tom Hanks' character is just pumped. I'm always pumped with him. And he's like getting ready to land and something happens in space and something blows up and something doesn't work. And suddenly they had to abort the mission and they had to figure out how they're going to get these astronauts back to earth without them suffocating, without them running out of power. And so these, all these NASA, amazing NASA engineers with all these, this amazing technology and equipment, uh, I believe it was led by, uh, what was his name, Ed Norris? What was his name? Anyone? Ed Harris. Ed Harris, who was my, secretly my favorite actor for a while, but I couldn't tell anyone because he was kind of older. Uh, Ed Harris, led by him, he was like, guys, you've got to figure out a way to get these astronauts back. And so the astronauts get in a room, and they kick everything out that the astronauts don't have in space. They get these powerful tools and equipment out of the room. They're like, okay, do they have that? Do they have two pins on the space shuttle? No, they don't. Get rid of the pin. Okay, what do they have? This is what they have. Okay, we've got to figure out a way so that they can, I think it was actually, get the CO2 out of the air that they're breathing so they don't die. And the, the, the NASA astronauts worked together using what the astronauts had in space, built a thingamabobber so that the astronauts out in space could actually do that and survive to get back to Earth. Does that make sense? You remember that, remember that scene, those people that are tracking with me? Okay, if you didn't, just that's your assignment for church. Your devotion tomorrow is to watch Apollo 13. You'll pick up what I'm talking about. And basically, they said, just give me what they have, and I will get them back here alive. That is what Jesus did for us. He saw the mess that we were in, and he said, give me what they have, and I'm going to get them out of there alive. I'm going to do it. Watch me. What do they get? They get the Holy Spirit. Josh gets the Holy Spirit. Jeff gets the Holy Spirit. Nick gets the Holy Spirit. Dimitri gets the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit. Okay, give me him. Now send me down there and let me go. And I will listen to him and I'll be empowered by him and I will do it. Don't believe me? Read Luke and Acts. His disciples do the same thing, right? Jesus did all these amazing miracles. He brought people back from the dead. He healed the blind. He healed the sick. Guess what? His disciples... Did they talk about what Jesus did or did they do it? They did it, right? Anytime that Jesus is moving, the Holy Spirit is moving through him. Anytime the disciples are moving, the Holy Spirit's moving. And I'm just telling you real quick in my last two minutes that the Holy Spirit is still leading those who believe in Christ to do things that Jesus did, the disciples did, so that we could preach the kingdom of God, not in wise words, but 
with power. Okay? Two quick stories. Uh, I've got a huddle that I meet with on Mondays at noon in the hub. That's our discipleship group here at Mercy Road Church. One of the women in that huddle, it's couples, and so one of the women in the huddle came to me a few months ago in our huddle, and she said, guys, this is crazy. Like, this happened this week, and I just want to tell you this happened because it's never happened to me before. She said, I was um, sitting at the table with my husband. We were talking, and I get this, what maybe would be a prophetic word or maybe even a word of knowledge. I think it was more prophecy. But she said, I got this word. I suddenly knew that we were going to get a phone call that my husband's dad was going to be in the hospital. It was going to sound really bad. But then I heard it was going to be okay despite what the doctors are saying. This actually happened, like over there. And I'm like, get out of here, right? Like I believe this stuff, but I'm still shocked every time I hear it. She goes, guess what happened? Like a minute later, the phone rings. My husband picks up the phone and she goes, honey, he's like, honey, hold on, this is serious. And she just starts crying. She's like, oh, she like knew what was going on, right? And he's like, we got to get the hospital. My dad's in bad shape. It doesn't look like he's going to make it. And she's like, listen, I knew that was going to happen. And this is what God told me. So they go to the hospital because you still have to go to the hospital, even though they're going to be okay, okay? Don't be that jerk, like son or daughter-in-law that like, uh, God said it'll be fine. And don't go like, they still go to the hospital. And while they're at the hospital, she says, guys, I want to tell you this. God told me this was going to happen. And he said it was going to be okay. And they're all like, what? So they like praise and they worship and they're excited. And guess what? He's okay. Okay, I'm not saying that God always does that. I'm saying that God, by his spirit, still does things like that. Real quick one for me last Sunday. This is like, that was a big significant one. I'm going to give you one like little, like, what's the point of that? I'm just saying, I don't know. God works, okay? God speaks. All right, yes, or last Sunday, I'm driving to church and I hear the spirit say, such and such a couple is going to approach you in the lobby today, and they're going to ask you if you'll officiate their wedding. I'm a pastor. You're like, well, yeah, of course that's going to happen. That like, doesn't happen, right, Josh? Like, that's not like a regular Sunday occurrence. It doesn't happen all the time. So I'm like driving in, and I actually forget about it because I'm such a follower of Jesus, and I so know the voice of the Holy Spirit that I never forget what he says. I totally spaced it. I forgot about it. Got, just showed up, started going to work. And I was talking to this couple, um, just somebody in, the, in the, the lobby over in the cafe, and I get this tap on the shoulder, and I turn around, and I look, and I see this couple, and I just smile. And they're like, hey, um, so Nick, we were just wondering, maybe, maybe if you'd like officiate our wedding in the spring. And I was like, sure, yeah, totally, that'd be awesome. And I had to drop it on, like, so I totally knew that you were going to ask me today. And she's like, what are you talking about? I haven't told anybody yet, you know, it was like such a cool thing. So anyway, all right, so all I'm saying is that God is at work The Holy Spirit is at work today, just like he was in Jesus, just like he was in the disciples, and just like he was in the stories I'm telling you. And so that is the power that I want us to focus on for this this closing prayer. And I got to say this before I close. I have to say this. Some of you are sitting in the room and you're asking yourself this question. So how does all of this affect me? And I want to just put this out there. Are you a mom? Are you a business owner? Are you a pastor or do you work in a factory? Whatever you are, what kind of power do you use to do what you do? Just think about that. You don't have to actually answer. Do you use right-handed power? Do you use left-handed power? Maybe you don't like the left-handed, right-handed power. Think about the types of power that you can use. Use your intellect. Use your emotion. Okay, now you got that. Now, do you rely on your own resources of power Or are you dependent on the Holy Spirit for power and direction daily? 
Because God, we know in the beginning, he gave us all power and capabilities and abilities when he created us. We, as free will individuals, are able to use that power as we want to do what we want. God doesn't stop that. But he also gives us this opportunity to put that on hold and say, Father, what, what do you want me to do today? How am I supposed to move? How am I supposed to act? What do you want to tell me? What are you going to empower me to do? And then here's the, here's the two more questions. If you rely on the Holy Spirit for power and direction, does your life look like Jesus or the disciples or Paul's? And if it doesn't, why not? Why not? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in me. It's in Josh. It's in Adam. It's in us. And Paul, who knew that very, like he wrote that down. He actually said, um, I didn't come with these wise and persuasive words, but I came with power. Not power that originated with Paul. Power that came from the Holy Spirit to do stuff to show people the kingdom of God. Listen, this looks like a crock of junk stories, fables, right? Guy comes, dies on the cross, and I'm telling you, he rose again from the dead, and then so will we. It's foolishness. But he's like, trust me, because watch what I'm going to do next. Okay? Let me just close this out in saying this, that Jesus is the marriage between God and man forever and always in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the incarnation to the death, resurrection, and the ascension because Jesus didn't drop his body off in the clouds like he took it with him. In heaven, when the angels look at Jesus, they see us. When we look at God, he says, I know you. See? See? Any questions? And so when you are tempted to make yourself feel less than you are, you were made in the image of God like twice over. You were, given, you were given a spirit and you were given a body that he decided to put on and for all eternity it is safeguarded in the, in the Godhead. So let me just close this in prayer by saying um, this. Would you close your eyes while I read this last scripture and pray? At the end, this is in Revelations 12, it says this, And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accused them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They have overcome him, that is us. We have overcome him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, and that we will not, that we, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He has filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much that you aren't a distant God that's way out there. Thank you so much that you have chosen a type of power. You have modeled the type of power that we are to tap into, that we are to depend on, to do what we're supposed to do on this earth. Thank you so much that the Holy Spirit actually comes and not only promises us a resurrection in the future, but also promises us to follow after you, like he'll guide us and he'll also empower us to do what you've called us to. And so, Jesus, for the one who is not sure what to think 
about today's conversation. I pray, Lord, that every time they hear the word power, they would think of you. And they would look at your scriptures and they would say, how did he do it? I pray that for those of us who are, have been in the church for a long time, and maybe a lot of these verses, we, we have always thought they meant something um, different than what was said today. I pray that we would go back and test these words, that we'd put down our, our so-and-so theology and our favorite books. We'd put all this stuff down and we would just read your word and say, God, by your spirit, show me what you did. Show me how I'm supposed to live. God, we trust you to give us life today, and we trust you for our future bodied resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.